0: Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 33, originally recorded live on October 14th, 2011. In Israel, the ultra-conservative Jewish population adhere to such a strict code of behavior that much of mainstream culture is not open to them, including movies. As always, there are exceptions to rules and Ushpizin is such an exception. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom reviews Ush Pizin and details the extraordinary circumstances necessary for this movie to be made. Israel is a segregated society. And not just between Arabs and Jews, but in particular,
1: between different kinds of Jews. In particular,
0: there's a community in Israel that are called the Haredi, Also, in English, called the Ultra-Orthodox, they don't call themselves that, because they would call themselves Jews. And what they do is Judaism. And what everyone else does is not Judaism. They they self-define righteous, right community. And they call themselves Haradi, from the word for to tremble. Because they are such strong believers in an active interventionist God who writes a Torah that tells you what to do, who watches your behavior, who knows if you are sleeping, who knows if you're awake, who knows if you've been bad or good.
1: <laughs>
0: this is the God of the Haredi Jews. And so they call themselves Haredi because their family and everyone else doesn't know the score. And it's going to get theirs. Now why is it segregated? It's segregated in every possible, imaginable way. It's segregated by residents. The neighborhoods they live in are all ultra-Orthodox Jews. It's segregated by work. In many cases, many of them don't work, because they receive a stipend as a full-time yeshiva student, and they don't serve in the army, like every other strain of Jewish-Israeli society. In many cases, their language is different, <coughs> because many of them every day speak Yiddish, and Not Hebrew, because they don't want to speak the holy language. Who ask where is the bathroom? How do I find the number seven bus? And also, of course, it separates them from that treifa Hebrew culture, that non-culture Hebrew culture, floating around in the advertisements and the magazines and the television and the bus stop and the music and the radios and all that terrible stuff.
1: Even the way they celebrate their holidays is very different, because they do it all the way, and then
0: for some Israelis on Shabbat, it's a pain because the buses aren't running or it's easier to drive because there's nobody on the road but for the Haredim Jewish holidays are the peaks of the calendar and also a time when life is different and they are different now one example of this segregation between the Haredi Jews and the, what I would call the everyone else Jews which would include, by the way, a group call the religious Zionist Jews, the Jews who uh, were what are called the knitted yarmulkes, um, who themselves are Orthodox, but they're who we might call modern Orthodox. <coughs> Even they are not seen as strict enough by the Haredim, by the strictly right now. Well, one of the ways they're segregated is the movies, because everyone else goes to the movies, but the Haredim never go to the movies,
1: because they might see a movie poster. They might have to sit next to a woman
0: woman in the theater. And who knows what she'll be wearing, or if she'll have covered her hair. Well, Israeli cinema as an industry is very successful and creative. It's been nominated for Academy Awards for foreign films. It's uh, received awards in Europe as well, very creative. But it's not part of the high world. In fact, when there are Israeli movies that focus on Orthodox figures, they are very rarely orthodox themselves. They're acting orthodox. Occasionally you'll get people who are what are called datlash, which means datileshira. Someone who was religious but had left it. So ex-religious. They'll often, if they become actors, then they'll portray orthodox people because they know about the routine. But the Orthodox and the ultra-orthodox world for the secular Jewish world is exotic. It's like the Amish. People who live in Pennsylvania, I mean, they're there, but they look so different, and they act so different, and they speak so different, and they believe so different, and they live so different. They're like us, I mean, Christian to, to uh, Amish, you know, they're both Christian, but very different style. Well, they're Jews, but just very, very different. Now, interestingly enough, for well, this movie, Ush seen. the main star of the movie is what they now call Dat Lash Lash. It was Dati, he was religious, he left it, and then he went back. And when he went back, he went even more religious than he was before. He was raised religious Zionist, so-called modern orthodox. He then became secular, he became a very well-known movie actor and stage actor. And then he really got religion. And he became an ultra, ultra-orthodox Jew. A Breslauert Sasset, I'll explain that in a minute. But he was an actor in the background. And so, several years later, one of his old friends, from his acting days, came to him and said, I have an idea for a movie. And so, the actor, who was the lead actor in the movie, wrote the movie. And his friend, the secular Jew, directed it. And so when they created this film, it was a window into this ultra-orthodox world that had an authenticity that you wouldn't expect to find in modern Israeli cinema. The actors, the participants in it, came from that world. And it even became very popular within the ultra orthodox world to watch the movie. But it was a problem, you see, because they couldn't go to the movie theaters. They were all watching bootleg copies of the movie. But then they asked the question is this kind of stealing? And is God going to get me because he knows what I've been sleeping, he knows, what I've been, he knows what I've been watching on video? So the rabbis issued a couple of degrees. One was they set up posters and little charity boxes where people, if they felt guilty, could contribute some money to the filmmakers and then uh, the post back out The other suggestion they offered was you could call up a theater and buy tickets with your credit card and then not show up. And so it's as if you've given the money for a show. The <laughs> but it became very common even in that world where they generally didn't see a modern movie at all. Movies are forbidden. In fact, there was a case in the 1980s of a Pacific group in New York where they. Legalized having VCRs because the theory was that uh, you could watch the Rebbe's sermons on video. The problem is, once you have a VCR, you can watch other things on video, like popular movies or even pornography, and then they had to cancel and revoke the permission for it. So, this was maybe a window into that world, how they responded to the filming of this. But you can tell from the very opening screen in the movie that the audience is not the ultimate. Because it takes time on the opening screen to explain what is Sukkot and what are to be seen, what are these gifts. The ultra orthodox world does not need that explained to them. But the secular world needs some backup just in case. Some of the secular Jews know a lot about the holidays. Some of them are these dot people that left the religious world to know it from growing up. But some of them don't know what's romantic And they need it filled in for them. <coughs> but you also find out that there are details in the movie that were done to make it acceptable to the ultra-Orthodox world. Because, after all, this man, this actor, Scully Run, had to live in that world after the film came out. So they couldn't do things in the film that portrayed his identity, personally and publicly public. consumption. So, for example, the actress in the film is not an actress by profession. It's his wife, his real wife, not just his wife, but the film.
1: She always has her head cut. She's almost the only woman
0: you see in the entire movie. you think these parolees who are skipping out on their parole would get a date or would look for one, but the topic doesn't even come up because the content is too far beyond what the community would support. And the very first screen where they're showing what Sukkot is, there's a little thing up in the corner, a bet, a samach, and a dollar. It stands for the Siyad which is an Aramaic phrase for with the help of heaven. Now, when I was young, people used to write on the corner of their pages, a bet and a hay, which stood for Baruch Hashem, meaning that whatever I'm doing on this page is for the sake of heaven. No matter what I'm writing, no matter what language it is, everything I write should say, for the sake of heaven. But that was thought to be a little bit too close to the name of God because the letter hay is in the... For that name of God that appears in the Bible. So they took a step back and said, let's say for the sake heaven in Aramaic, which is in Hebrew, so it's safer, and so no, you don't yeah. longer see the bet and the hay together. You see bet, son, and dala. But that's up in the corner, you never see that in the movie. But in this case, the very beginning of the movie, the kosher stamp, the movie is proved. You'll also notice if you see the movie that the actor, even if he's saying a blessing, never says the words Adonai or Elohim. In a traditional setting, you only say those words, the names of God, if you're actually saying a prayer. If you're talking about it, you would say Hashem, the name. Or Adoshem is a step back from the name, which is a step back from Adonai, which is a step back from Yahweh, which is the original name you're not supposed to say. In Elohim, you would always say Elohim, Elohim doesn't mean anything, but it's a substitute. Just to be so they do that again in the film. Even if he's saying a prayer in the film, because he's acting, it's not said exactly the way it would be. And there was even one scene where these people who are uninvited guests of the sukkah have left it a mess, and he goes in and he sees a prayer book on the floor. Except, it's not on the floor. It's actually on a chair it's on the floor. Just to put an actual prayer book on the floor, that would be a problem on a chair, on the so there's a little detail there to make it more palatable for an ultra-Orthodox audience or for an actor who's in that set. And most importantly, the way it was made acceptable for ultra-Orthodox Jews to see it is how the secular Jews are portrayed in the movement. <coughs> They're ignorant of what it means to be Jewish, of what Sukkot is, of what the symbols are. They're criminals. The only secular Jews you meet are literally escape convicts. Who are on the land and who are boors. And the best among them, the ones that actually have some kind of heart and soul, become what's called a Baal teshuva. They become newly religious, like the main character and his wife.
1: But The
0: most interesting part of the film is that in some ways it's a Rorschach test. Because if you're religious and you see, you get one message. But if you're secular and you watch it, you get a different
1: message. So what's the story?
0: for those who didn't see the It's Sukkot in Jerusalem, a very exciting time, one of the historic pilgrimage dates when everyone would go to Jerusalem. And for those living in Jerusalem, the sense of being in a holy space, the same holy space your ancestors observed the holiday in, is very meaningful. And everyone's getting ready, getting together their sukkah, their temporary wood shack, they're building, getting their lulav, their palm fronds, getting their etrog, their citron fruit, be able to celebrate the holiday appropriately. It's an ultra Orthodox world. It's all you see all around you. And the of Hasidim are perhaps the most energetic celebrants of Sukkot. Now, who are the Bratzlava? Well, there's a town called Bratzlava. And there was a rabbi, one of the earliest founders of a Hasidic sect or uh, family grouping, as they started, whose name was Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman was known for being brilliant. For telling wonderful stories, and for most likely being manic-depressive. Because he would go through times of great sadness and loneliness, and he would go through times of great joy and activity, and, and you could see the symptoms a little bit. But when Rabbi Nachman died, he was so beloved that, unlike every other sect of Hasidic Judaism, they never chose a successor. Every other sect, they always choose a successor. Sometimes they choose two when they've got to remove the real one. It happens with Lubavitchers, actually, when they're Major rabbi died in the '90s. There was a split in the community over who was the right pair. Well, in the case of the brass lovers, they never chose another. They never chose another rabbi as their central figure. In fact, other Hasidim called them the toyter Hasidim, the
1: dead facets, because they don't have a rabbi. But
0: in the end, what they did focus on was the joy, not the depression. The joy. As if a brisla, brislasidim, celebrating your joy and your joyousness is important, and because you don't have a rebbe who is your intermediary to God, you get to talk to God yourself. It's a principle they call hikpo Go by yourself and talk to God like he's sitting next to you, like he's your friend. It's okay. A chasi comes from the word chesed to love, and so you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So you have these scenes in the movie where he's praying to God, and he's not using ritual formula, he's saying, I need this, please, I need this, please, and it's all of his heart thrown into the moment. Now, the story concerns a man named Moshe Volanda and his wife Molly. They're both from a secular background and have become religious. They've been married for five years and not produced a child. You know, living in New York, that's not a big deal. <laughs> living in Chicago, what's a big deal. Five years, no okay, kids, no problem. But in the ultra-Orthodox world, One of the fundamental commandments, goes back to Adam and Eve, as well as Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And they haven't done it. In fact, it's grounds for him to divorce her. There's another film, uh, I believe it's called Kadosh. that came out a few years ago, where that's exactly the theme of the movie, where there's a couple, they love each other deeply, but because she hasn't produced a child and it's assumed to be her fault, he's forced to divorce her to marry someone else so he can fulfill this again. Well, in this case, he refuses to divorce. They've been married five years. He says, I believe, I have faith, we'll have a son, don't worry about it. She says, leave me. He says, I won't leave you because I love you. But that tension is there that they haven't had a child. And maybe it's because of their sins. And maybe there's an omen coming. Let's eat fish because fish are fruitful and multiply. And let's, let's find guests for our sukkah because it, it'll, it'll multiply the people in the house and therefore multiply the people in the house. We
1: hope. Moshe is a poor yeshiva student
0: who has nothing for sukkot. There's a head of lettuce in the fridge. They have nothing, not even money, to buy lulav and an etrog. First scene in the movie, he goes to an etrog dealer. And of course, they're receiving all the etrogs and they're evaluating how much are they worth. There's a panel of three judges, and they have to decide, is this worth 100 shekels, is this worth 200 shekels, and then they open a box and take out a beautiful etro. Now, does it look that much different from all the other ones? <laughs> but they decide, this is the diamond, they call it. This one is worth 1,000 shekels, which is about $250, $300, for an, for an etro that is, you know, you use for a week. And you don't even use it. You smell it, and you're not supposed to make
1: anything out of it. He goes and he sees
0: her. He'd love to have it, but he has nothing of nothing. He finds a friend and he says to his friend, I, I don't even have a sukkah.
1: What am I supposed to do? And so he goes out to pray. And his wife sits at home
0: and she prays, and she's praying with the fixed text. And he's praying with all of his heart and his soul. And then, as can only happen in a movie, say, okay. a miracle happens. They're chosen, almost at random, to receive a special tzedakah holiday gift of a thousand dollars.
1: And then a friend finds him and says, I found a used sukkah that someone doesn't need, that you can have. And so, they have a sukkah, they have money, they can have food, and his love, and he goes back to the Etrog store, to get the diamond.
0: And he comes home with two gifts for his wife. One is the etro, and the other is to make up for the fact that he spent a thousand shekels in the etro. It's a pair of new earrings. If you're going to come home with a new toy that <laughs> costs $300, you better consider what else you need to bring home to make that acceptable. But it works. Everything seems to be turning up roses, except. With the fly and the oil, or should I say the flies, <laughs> A man who knew Moshe Belandah when he was not the Chassid Moshe Belanga, when he was the young, out of control, brawling, drinking Moshe Belanga. Well, this man's name is Eliyahu, Elijah, <clears throat> which is a great name for someone who's gonna show up on an <laughs> because that's, you know, the myth, that Elijah comes and he precludes the arrival of the Messiah, He disguises himself in many different ways. in this case, he called Elijah. He skips out on his prison sentence. He says, I can't go there anymore. And he takes his friend Joseph with him, and they show up in Jerusalem, and they crash with Moshe and his wife. And Moshe and his wife say,
1: they're
0: holy guests. Maybe this is a sign. How wonderful. They're bad guests. They're crude. They have no idea what's going on with the service and the celebration and the holiday. They have no idea what it commemorates. I mean, Moshe is telling them stories about it and they have no patience to listen to him. They drink too much. They don't believe his conversion. It's all some kind of scam or some kind of ruse. They're wandering around this specific enclave and they see all these fur hats called the shrine that these people are wearing. Because it's what they used to wear in Eastern Europe. And of course, you've got to wear the exact same things no matter where you are. You you wonder why they're a little crazy and it's because they're wearing fur hats in Israel all year round. And he says, these things cost 2,000 shekels. And Joseph says, do you realize this neighborhood is 200,000 shekels just wandering around? (laughs) You know, he's he's still thinking about a scam in England. So they think, once you belong, they must be doing the same kind of angle. There must be an angle here somewhere. In the end, they play loud modern music. They're dancing around, disrupting the neighbors, violating the social norms. And they, they don't
1: care. They don't care. In the end,
0: Molly and Moshe realize this must be a test. After all, if they were easy guests, what kind of a test is it? So they're hard guests. Wonderful! It's a test for us. If we pass the test, then we'll receive our reward.
1: And then Moshe hears... Through the
0: grapevine that the sukkah that he got secondhand might not have been secondhand originally. Because what's the point of celebrating Sukkot in a stolen sukkah? In the end, he gets it absolved, he finds the person whose sukkah was borrowed on his behalf, the person absolves him, absolves him, absolves him, and finally feels the weight off his shoulders. But he comes home and everything he He lied to get them to go away, and they came back. So he was able to get over that. But the second time, he didn't tell his wife the whole truth. He knew that they were escaped convicts. At some point in that week, they were living in the sukkah, and he didn't tell her, and he put them at risk. And so after a public confrontation over the music and the cooking that they're doing, Molly, his wife, leaves. Elijah and Joseph want to make up. They realize they messed up. So they make a big, beautiful salad, but what they say they always love on the salad is lemons. They love having lemon, <laughs> <laughs> but they can't find any lemon in the fridge. Oh, but in the living room,
1: in a little box, they find a great lemon. It's not a lemon. It's the diamond, the thousand shekel etrog that you're not supposed to eat.
0: And so Moshe Balanga comes back from getting himself
1: absolved from the sukkah product. And his wife goes and his friends give him a salad. And it comes out. The salad was made with the etram. And he says to himself, don't be
0: angry. Don't be angry. And he runs away into the forest because he's very angry. But he knows what he's capable of doing. If he's angry, and so he flees, finally he's able to come back to a calm state of mind. His friends are gone. Friends. His acquaintances are gone. He's taking down his sukkah, and his wife returns.
1: She says, I think we should name him Nachman. Pregnant.
0: Right. The final scene of the movie is the dress, where the Rebbe of the community is the Sonic, the special person holding the baby about to be circumcised. Everyone's there to celebrate. Even his Abi Chorus, his heretic secular friends, show up <laughs> with a big, gaudy gift to give to the kid. It's all a happy holiday ending. <laughs> so the question is why was this film so popular with both? secular and religious audiences. Well, as I said, it's like a Rorschach test. Either you say, these are impossible coincidences, it could only have been a miracle. It was only a miracle they got the money, it was only a miracle that they received the, uh, the, uh, the diamond of an etro, it was a miracle they got the sukkah, it was a miracle they received the child, it was a test that they passed by the religious explanation. Or, if you're secular, you see the movie and you say, oh, that's a movie. <laughs> this is what happens in a movie, right? You know, Crazy coincidences, and so-and-so runs into so-and-so, and there's a misunderstanding, and then you've got to get it resolved. There's something radically new about this that happens in 30 minutes in a sitcom. Or an hour and a half in
1: a romantic comic. I remember hearing a story
0: about a story. There's a very famous Yud-Lamit Pirit's short story called Three Gifts, and it tells a story of Jewish martyrdom as an example of how you relate to it when you're psychical. The story is that a man goes up to heaven, and his deeds, good and bad, are found in the exact balance, and he has to find something to tip the scales. He goes back to Earth. he finds examples of martyrdom, and he brings them back, these three gifts. And the angels look at his three gifts, and they say to him, these three things are absolutely beautiful. Totally worthless, but absolutely beautiful. The message of the story is that when you're secular, they died for nothing. They died for a religion and a God that wasn't paying attention. But the act of their faith was beautiful in a tragic way. But I heard the story that this Eric's story called Three Gifts is told in ultra-Orthodox setting. They just cut off the last line of the story. So the story ends for them after these stories of martyrdom, these three things are absolutely beautiful. It changes the meaning of the story in So that's the case with this movie as well, if you want to read it religiously you can, but if you want to see it as it's always an ironic commentary on their faith as they get taken advantage of it, taken advantage of it, these secular people who are criminals take money from them and, and abuse their hospitality again and again and again, and they're just sitting back and taking it. You see it as a test, or you can see it as they're suckers. But it just depends on which side of the ledger you're
1: on. Some of the themes that come out of the movie are priorities. A thousand shekels for an intro? That's a bit
0: much. Even his wife says, Ugh, you are unlike anybody either. Which is a nice way of saying it. <laughs> you're crazy. But there's also the priority of yeshiva study over working to get a job. You see, he's poor, but he doesn't go to work. He goes to the yeshiva. His hope for money is from the yeshiva, from charity, from relying on others. Someone's got to work. This is a major issue in Israel today because such a large percentage of their population is not productive. Between the yeshiva men and the Arab women in Israel, there's a substantial part of the population. just does not work outside of the home or doesn't work at all real drag on the
1: society. Special priorities of hospitality and
0: generosity versus standing up for yourself. I mean, Moshe Balanga is, uh, we find out over the course of the movie that he had a temper, he had an issue with managing standing up for himself too much, perhaps. But in the yeshiva world, he doesn't stand up for himself so much he never gets any charity because he doesn't say, I need something. And his wife berates him and says, why don't you stand up for yourself once in a while? Maybe he's overcorrected. But isn't there a limit? And they're hospitable to their ushbizin. But what about to their neighbors? I mean, they apologize for yelling too loud, literally in the movie. But these people are jerks and loud and obnoxious and totally violating the norms of their community. But they won't kick them out for the sake of the other people because they're their ushbizin. You
1: know, there's the old joke about house guests. Most house guests say goodbye and then they leave. Jewish house guests say goodbye in never. <laughs> one of the interesting themes in the movie is Jewish literacy.
0: Because occasionally, the secular Jews do know something. Even Joseph was the ignorant buffoon of the two. Context
1: is, oh, be fruitful and multiply. I know that one. <laughs>
0: of course, it's shaming the wife to highlight the fact that she hasn't had kids yet. And threatening her with divorce, because it's always present in her mind that it's going to happen. He doesn't understand that. His uh, interpersonal skills are limited. But he knows something. And the other one, Eliab is a little bit more. But in the end, they're living in a different world. Their library, they look at the books on your shelf, and they're like, what are all these books? They have no idea what his world is. Their vocabulary is different. Their experiences are different. But the most interesting personal theme is the theme of anger and joy. You know, Moshe says, don't be angry, don't get angry, don't get angry. He used to be a fighter with a temper and maybe the reason he doesn't assert himself now <laughs> is a part of his break of the past. Now when I think about this segregated Israel, the conflict between the Haredi Orthodox Jews and the secular Israelis, I almost always think about it from the perspective of the secular. After all, that's those with whom I have much greater affinities. The secular Israelis get upset at the Haridim for imposing their values, controlling marriages and divorces, forcing bus lines in Israel to be segregated between men and women with women riding in the back. If you drive down the wrong street on Shabbat, they'll smash your windows because evidently throwing stones doesn't work or driving your car and heaven forbid, you drive your car in the wrong place, or wear the wrong clothes in the wrong community. And even more so, the very sense that they have the right to impose their values on me. That I have to wear what they tell me to wear. That I have to do what they tell me to do. That I'm responsible for the rules that they choose to follow. That they will riot if we try to open a public parking garage on a Saturday for the people who are coming to Jerusalem as tourists. Because it's taking money on Shabbat. That their politicians will serve in the Knesset. And demand money for their schools, which do not teach democracy, which do not teach public values, which do not conform to the general curricula. But they they get money for their schools anyways. There are state secular schools, there are state religious schools, and there are the ultra-Orthodox schools that are not state schools at all and don't care what the state curriculum says. And yet they get money because of coalition governments. So you can see the resentment from the secular. And one of the preeminent symbols of this is the army, because the secular Israeli has to serve in the army, men and women. The already ultra-Orthodox Jew does not serve in the army, neither men nor women,
1: except for a few exceptions in recent years. So
0: you hear a lot about the secular resentment of the ultra-Orthodox. But what made this film fascinating to me is you get a window at the other
1: side. What is it like living
0: as an ultra-Orthodox Jew? All these secular Jews all around you. The ones who are driving their cars down your street, the ones whose women have their hair uncovered as a temptation to you. The, one, the ones who are playing this loud music that sends values you don't agree with, that you don't have a choice to listen to or not. The ones who are sitting next to you on the bus, touching you with their tray hands and eating pork and a knows what. In the middle of menstruations, you have to go back to the... Who knows? And what makes it terrible for you is you know that they're Jews who are doing it. At one point, Molly is trying to defend them, even if they're playing a lot of music. She says, but they're Jews, they're Jews, at least they're Jews. You know they're Jews who are ignoring the laws. And, you see, it's not like in modern liberal America where you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and I eat what I eat, and you eat what you eat, and who cares... The sense in Israel, the sense among the ultra Orthodox Jews is that every Jew is obligated to fulfill these commandments. Not just me, not my personal choice, but you and you and you. And if you're breaking them, you're hurting us as a whole. Willfully,
1: violently, personally. The ultra Orthodox don't have a problem explaining the, the Holocaust. It's very easy. Punishment for sin? We were sinning, we were breaking the laws, look what happens. Easy. Bad. Well, so now you understand. A little bit. You see, they get the complaints. You all look the same.
0: Get in the modern times, why don't you? Like, I was chatting with Marcia just before the service and she said, when the movie started, I wondered what time it was set. And then I saw a bus go by. Then <laughs> see the buildings, oh, I guess it's
1: now. But in some parts, you wouldn't know. So perhaps the
0: message of Ushbizin is to both the religious and the secular audience. After all, the director of the secular. Maybe the focus shouldn't be on the depression, the
1: division, the anger. Maybe the focus should be on the joy
0: of being together. Don't get caught up what annoys us or enrages us about each other. It can be tough to do. But perhaps there are times, there are ways, special moments, a time outside of time, like a holiday, a space outside of your regular space, like a sukkah, an opportunity to do things differently, to spend a thousand shekels on an intro, to welcome in people whom you would never have anything to do with in a conventional set. If it had not been Sukkot, they would not have been welcome. But maybe there's a way to be together. And the best model for this is a Hasidic invention.
1: It's called the nigun. The nigun is very simple.
0: It's a melody where the words don't matter. Biddy bidi bum, lie diddy die, doesn't matter. It's the singing together that counts. It was designed for people who didn't know Hebrew, who couldn't speak Hebrew, who couldn't read Hebrew. They were workers, farmers, who knows what, laborers. And if we can sing together, and maybe we can live, if not together, then next to each other in a more vividly way. Well, I enjoyed the movie. It wasn't perfect. A little too, I would say, Deus Ex Machina at the end, where everything just sort of ties yeah. up in a neat little bow and a happy ending and that isn't, you know, what we think of as good movies. But after all, if they got a lesson that shattered their faith, it wouldn't have worked. For the audience and the actors involved. Okay. But a very interesting window into Jewish culture in Israel and to onto, of Jewish culture and Jewish diversity today. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.